Welcome to Life of the School, episode 52. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Britt Chuperna. Britt is a biology teacher at Niles West High School in Skokie, Illinois. Throughout her teaching career, Britt has taught a variety of courses, including AP Biology. Additionally, she has supervised several extracurricular activities with a STEM focus, including the Stellar Girls Program, where elementary students are brought to the high school for weekly hands-on STEM explorations. This past spring, Britt participated in the Pre-AP National Faculty Institute, looking at uh, content and skills needed to prepare students for AP Biology in the future. Welcome, Britt. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, this is this is funny because Britt has been part of my like secret PLC during the school year um, <laughs> that I never talk about on the podcast. But uh, I, I roped her in to come in during a, a summer to sit down and talk because I, I don't think what well, we haven't talked in like two months. I think that's about right. June. Was it June? It was probably, yeah. yeah it, was, it was either May or June. But yeah, it was... Um, but we, yeah, it's been a while, and we had gotten together in probably the uh, least coordinated PLC group of three people who could never arrange their time zones or their like evenings or whatever. But uh, it was actually great for me because uh, we participated in that um, NABT BSES uh, Regional Teacher Institute last summer, uh, which is weird because neither of us are from anywhere near the, near Florida, and why we ended up both being in Florida was strange. Uh, I went to Florida because my in-laws have a place there, oh, okay. so I had a free place to stay and a car to use there. So for me, it was like the easiest option in terms of uh, summer PD, and it was a chance to get away for a little bit. Um, yeah, so <laughs> and you're... I ended up in Florida, and it was really an awesome professional experience. I think it was you know, right, it was right after I had started teaching AP Bio, and it was pretty impactful, the yeah. uh, NABT BSCS AP Bio Regional Teaching Academy. I highly recommend it. Yeah, they're, they've moved up. They're actually going to be, we're recording this in late July, and this is going to come out in early August. And so the, the same ladies who had worked on that at least I know um, Val and a couple of the others are running that same group is running that workshop up in Connecticut um, at, at Val School. So it'll be interesting to see or hear from them how it goes when they get to do it on Val's home turf as opposed to down in Florida. Um, I'm guessing Connecticut may be a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was know. pretty hot and in Florida. <laughs> Yeah, the last couple of weeks here in Massachusetts have been very, like, it. we've been, this past week has been, like, it's either raining or it's sunny and, like, 80% humidity. So it actually has been fairly, I mean, it's probably 15 degrees cooler than it was in Florida, but it, when you're in it every day, it feels, it feels about as humid as it did when we were down in Florida for that week, so. Yeah, I guess that, that summer, it's never now. Yeah, on the East Coast, we're all, it's a swamp all summer. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So um, I, you know, I'm going to start the question I like to ask everybody because I don't actually think I know this answer. And you just sort of mentioned that you'd gotten into teaching AP 
fairly recently after teaching for a while. But I'm curious, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the science classroom? So I think my, I don't know how unique my story is, but I always feel like it's a little bit different. Uh, When I was a kid, I always kind of said I wanted to be a teacher. I just didn't know what I wanted to teach. And then my freshman year of high school, I loved biology class. I had this really amazing teacher and I just fell in love with the content. I, I have a distinct memory of a moment going home and saying to my mom, mom, I want to teach biology. So as a 15 year old, I made up my mind that that's what I had wanted to do. Uh, And then I finished high school, went on to college and there I double or I got a major in biology and minored in um, education and got my certificate. And right after I graduated college, started teaching immediately at the school where I attended high school. And that's where I've been ever since. So I've been in the same place for the past, this is going to be my 17th year. And the one of my favorite parts of the story is that teacher I had freshman year who inspired me to want to teach biology is now one of my best friends. Wow. Well, I don't know you because you've been there. I knew you had been there a long time. I didn't realize you had been there for your entire career. Yeah. So you go in there, I guess, culturally, how is it? Was it an easy thing to go back and teach in the school where you had gone? Um, was it an easy transition or? So I think maybe there were, you know, those moments of, oh, you're my colleague now. You're not my teacher anymore. Um, but that lasted for maybe like, I don't know, two or three months. And then everything was fine. And, you know, the I have we have a really great community at the school. I think the other people who teach there are really wonderful people. They're great teachers and every like, we're all just friends now. So it's, it's, it's fun. And I, there's, like I said, it was a little funny at first, but now I've been there so long that this spring I was talking to somebody in, in my office and she and I looked at each other and had this moment of realization where we thought, Oh, we're like the old people here now. <laughs> I, I know that feeling. I'm guess I'm also wondering because where I teach, it's actually really not uncommon at all for former students to come back and teach. Um, I'm trying to think of like within my department, there are several people who were graduates of the of the high school, and there are several former students of mine who teach in other departments throughout the building. Is that common there, or are you a, an outlier in that community? You know, I would say over 10% of our teachers are probably returning students. Um, I also live in the community. So that piece, I think, is fun as well. My my children will attend the high school that I teach. And it's also the high school where my husband, like I met my husband there. So yeah. the two of us went there. Now our kids are going to go there and I'm teaching there. So it's like, I don't know if that's awesome or so I feel like some people I tell that and they look at me like, oh my gosh, you're that person who just never got out of town. <laughs> you're the ultimate townie. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but I enjoy it. I think, I think living community gives you um, sort of a different connection and experience and, and a, a familiarity with some of the kids in the sense that when things happen or um, you know, not good or bad or or just things that are going on. You have this, you have an awareness and an understanding that um, that is a little bit beyond than 
what you would get from just teaching in in the district. So, and I'm reaching a point where I'll be getting, I'll be starting to have my kids friends, like mm -hmm. daughters in seventh grade this year. So in two years, they'll all be there, which is going to be um, interesting. But I won't be the first and I won't be the last. There's quite a few teachers in that situation in our school. Yeah. And I, I think that for me, like, because I teach in a community that's very similar to the community I grew up in. Um, and I've taught in communities that were very different. And you're like, even just you're more connected to it. I do think that there's an authenticity of understanding what it's like to be like the students that you teach. And I imagine that, you know, since you've been in the community, you're so invested. While they're always going to be a generational difference, they can't like look at you as inauthentic from the community because you're very much part right. of it. And they, they know that. Right. Right. And I, now it's good. Like I said, it's going to do the point where not, I know a lot of their parents too, like just from my kids growing up in the community. <laughs> there, was, there was one day where I was sitting in an office and I hear these kids coming out of another class and three of them are older siblings of my daughter's friends. And I don't think they realized I was there or they maybe they didn't realize they could hear me. But one of them says, she knows my mom. <laughs> one of them says, my sister is friends with her daughter. And then one of them says, yeah, I've been to her house when my mom picked up my sister. It's weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess there's a, there's a degree of familiarity that's, um, I don't know. I, 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 I struggle a little bit with the, the community piece. A lot of my colleagues have moved into the town, and so they are getting a lot of that same experience. And I have a lot of my students just assume I live in the town just because I've been teaching there for 18 years, even though I don't, uh -huh. um, because you become part of the institution. And, you know, I always joke with them. It's like, yeah, they plug us right in in the back storeroom there at night. Like you go home and they just plug us in overnight. Um, so it is it's probably interesting that you're that these kids sort of see you outside in the community. It's it probably helps with some of those relationships, you know, especially if a kid's struggling or, you know, maybe school's not their <laughs> not their best thing in the world. Uh, having some of that connection when the kids struggle with their identity as they're going through high school probably helps a little bit um, to bridge some of those gaps. I, I think it's something that when I was a younger teacher, it scared me a little bit. Like it made me nervous to be close to them um, and see them out very much. But I think age has, has made it more comfortable as well as just realizing that there's a lot of benefits to it. Yeah. I think it's something that scares a lot of people away too. I think like even you know, teachers that have been teaching for, for a long time, I will say things like, I would never want to do that. And, and, and having experienced it, it's, to me, it's not necessary. It's not a bad thing. I, I certainly would have said it's that. It's really fun. It's yeah. actually really fun. I certainly would have said so. the same thing early in my career that, oh no, I'd never want to teach in the same community that I live. But also looking back, and I, I've said this many times that like, the person that I was who taught at 25 and 26 and 27 and the person that I am now, they're just not the same person. And right. I was projecting 25, 26, 27-year-old me onto what it would be like to have, you know, kids of this age as I have been, you know, I have a, my 15-year-old at home, um, you know, working on his summer science project and his summer math and stuff like that and doing that. It's just... Yeah, it wouldn't be that wouldn't be bad for me because I know those kids. I know the kids that he goes to school with and that sort of thing. And would it be terrible if I taught in that school? The answer is no, it wouldn't be. It just it'd be fine. It would just be a little different. Um, 
but you're right. Twenty. I, the idea of it scaring off. It certainly, <laughs> when I was younger, it scared me off, and I was not that I could afford to live in the town that I teach in, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> or could have at that age. Uh, that's a totally separate story. Um, but yeah, it's a it's it's definitely a different perspective. Um, but I'm going to shift gears on you because you are not the ultimate townie because you are somebody who ventures out and goes to PD and goes around and travels at least in the last couple of summers. Uh, I don't know if it's been how long a career your career has been taking you off to various places. But I know that, you know, we just talked about the NABT going down to Florida. And I know that you went to the pre-AP National Institute. So uh, we had talked a little bit about that. It's something that I had been intrigued by. Um, in our conversations throughout the year. And so we haven't had a chance to talk about what what this pre-AP National Faculty Institute was other than you messaging me saying, oh, when you go to the read, you got to say hi to this person and that person and this person and that person. <laughs> but what, were, what are some of your takeaways from, from going to the pre-AP National Faculty Institute? Maybe start by saying, like, what was it? And, and then what were your takeaways? So the pre-AP National Faculty Institute was, uh, it was a really incredible experience in Dallas, Texas. And they, the purpose of it was to train faculty to be ready to go out and give workshops uh, about pre-AP. And our workshops were focused on what they call these one-day readiness workshops. But let me give you a little bit of structure or a little bit of an overview of the structure of the program. So this uh, program, there's sort of two tiers to it. Uh, the pre there's pre-AP courses, which are uh, guided, targeting really ninth graders, ninth and tenth graders. Um, and the package of courses, and they come in every discipline, science, math, English, uh, history and there's a couple fine arts courses even included. The pre-AP program has really done a nice job of building all of their courses on these four shared principles and the four shared principles are close observation and analysis, higher order questioning, evidence-based writing, and academic conversations. So every course focuses on these four shared principles. So, and then when you get into the discipline specific courses, for example, the biology pre-AP course adds on to that these specific uh, focuses of analytical reading and writing, application of math, and attention to modeling. And these are these specifics are slightly different in each discipline. But this is really the first program that I've seen that I think has sort of packaged everything in a way where those shared principles are clearly embodied throughout every discipline. And uh, that was really sort of amazing to see. And to me, you know, having been in the same school for 16 years and watching conversations, you know, they sort of they're on a cycling rotating basis, but every every so often the focus changes in the school, right? And you're trying to make you're trying to make the experience better for the kids and incorporate whatever research is current and make the kids' school experience as best as it can possibly be in terms of preparing them for the future. And pre-AP has done this amazing job of put well putting it all together in a way that makes sense that's fluent and like i said it's the first program that i've seen that has i think that has it all that has put it all together and in a way that seems what seems easily executable so those are the pre-ap 
discipline specific courses. Now, what we were trained to do were these one day readiness workshops. So maybe you're a school that isn't ready to take on the course. Maybe they don't yet have a course that suits your needs, like a middle school, for example. You wouldn't necessarily be teaching ninth grade biology, but maybe you want to learn more about how you can teach your middle school students good skills, but also ensure that you're working towards, you know, readiness for high school, for ultimately AP level, but just I think high school readiness, a district can sign up for this workshop and they, the purpose is to, to provide teachers with PD, showing them how to incorporate those shared principles into their course development or curriculum development, and then also the uh, science-specific ones. So to me, this was really, this piece of it, I didn't, when I started, I didn't, I don't think I understood exactly what the difference between the pre-AP course and the one-day readiness workshops were, but the one-day readiness workshops were sort of the more interesting piece to me because it means these skills or this approach with these four shared principles is now accessible to anyone. Like any district who wants to learn more, any district who, or any teachers who um, want to seek out professional development about, to learn more about how to write curriculum, there's access to this sort of professional development now. And the other piece that stood out with me was they had us do this workshop about the college board's equity and access policy. And, you know, the equity and access policy has been there for a long time. And the this program to me was really an aha moment. And it was it's the piece of the equity and access statement that says all students should have access to academically challenging work before they enroll in AP courses. Mm. And I feel like that was always sort of a question or a black box. What does that mean? Access to academically challenging work? Because College Board had never put out well, there, there's never really been a clear definition of what that looks like. And I think, you know, in teachers in different districts and different cities and different states, we all have our own idea of what that looks like. And to see this program put out by College Board and both the specific discipline courses and with the one day readiness workshops, kind of showing you the philosophy behind the planning of the program. It was really eye-opening, and I felt that this program really sort of stepped up to that equity statement because it gave a clear way to achieve readiness for kids. And then the other thing I realized being at the training was that the purpose of this isn't necessarily to get every kid to take AP, right? If you have a kid in a class and maybe your course will help them be more prepared to take AP, but even, even if they go on and decide they don't, let's say biology, they don't want to take AP biology, what they've gained, the skills that they've gained in a course like this or that's written with these shared principles in mind, they're just good skills. It's good learning. Mm. So I think, I think it's a win-win so it sounds like the, the skills that they're looking at, and you said there are some specific, the skills are really the driver way, way more than the content, even though like you, you have science-specific content. This is really about establishing a baseline of what like rigorous skill work is. Is that a fair statement? 
That's a very fair statement. Yes. So, so if I'm, and you mentioned sort of middle school, but I think it's a little bit, you know, and I teach in honors, which is a freshman, sophomore class. And a lot of people who teach AP teach that class. And then we have students who come on and take the AP later. But would it be necessarily valuable to have conversations about pre-AP readiness broadly amongst science teachers to say, hey, like, if you're looking at students who may want to take AP biology or AP chemistry or AP physics down the line, these are skills that are part of the pre-AP course for freshmen and sophomores to look at to help inform the discussion about, you know, these are skills we've pushed you at and you're going to have to do these skills later in these AP courses so that it is not a black box of, well, it's just a hard course that you take as a junior or senior, but here are some specific skills that we've tried out and you're now going to build on those later. Does that seem reasonable? Yes, that's exactly the point. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And there's a they put out a program, like I said, that has a couple different menu options. They've got the packaged course or they've got the readiness workshops, which is a one like it's their one day workshops for teachers. And there's two of them available in science right now. One is a focus on analytical reading, analytical writing. And the second course is building inquiry in the science class. I think that's what it's called. I may not have that. Developing inquiry mindsets in the science classroom is what it's called. So if you're not ready to jump onto the course, there's these two one-day readiness workshops that can provide teachers with the same sort of PD that emphasizes those shared principles and skills. And yes, it is very skill-based. And that's sort of the other refreshing piece about it to me is, you know, with all this, everybody moving to to an NGSS aligned curriculum, right? But I think in the back of all of our heads, especially those of us who've been teaching for quite a while, a lot of us are thinking, what what does that mean exactly? And it's a process to figure that out. And it's hard to even gauge where you are in that process because you, you think you, I feel like you take a couple steps forward and you're like, oh, this makes so much more sense. And then you see something else and you're like, wait a minute. There's so much more that I don't know about how to do this. And for me, attending the training for the pre-AP program, um, that was that was a big moment of, oh, this is what they're talking about when they when they're talking about skill based learning and and the content isn't as important as really emphasizing some of these skills that the kids need to become proficient at. Mm. One of the things that I've been thinking about throughout the summer a little bit is the difference of presenting content first and then having kids sort of like play around a little bit with the skills in the context of the content. So I think of like a lot of sort of the demonstration labs, the old school demonstration labs. I teach the concept of enzymes. Here's a bunch of content about enzymes. Enzymes denature at a certain temperature. They're, they have their sub, substrate specific. I present all that and then I give a whole bunch of materials over that's an enzyme lab that, yeah, they're measuring. Yeah, they're maybe writing a CER as a result of it. But what they're doing is they're... I'm presenting content and then they're sort of playing with the skills on the back end. And that in a lot of instances, you can do the other way around. You could sort of in the NGSS way sort of show something and say, all right, here's this thing. Like here's these bubbles. What questions do you have? All right. How could we follow through? And then using the skills to open up content the other way around is a, 
is something that I think a lot of, and you've mentioned, you know, us being, um, I think we said experienced teachers. We're not old. We're just experienced teachers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But as experienced teachers, we grew up in a system which was content, content, content. Biology is a content descriptive subject. But by reframing and retraining a little bit on the skill orientation, we can present a skill-based way of accessing content. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know if that <laughs> if that's logical. Yeah, no, that's perfectly logical. And the other thing I've sort of realized with this is that you know once you start to once you see it done once or twice, like modeled, then you can start to see everywhere in your course how you can model these skills, where you can tie them in. But for me, I had to see it done a few times in a couple of different contexts before I. I really felt like I could say, oh, the modeling, let's take the modeling, for example, right? That was a struggle, understanding what a model is, how to get students to build a model. And I really had to see it modeled for me several times before I could wrap my mind my mind around how to do it in my classroom with some moderate level or what I felt was some moderate level of success where the kids walk away from it feeling like they know a little bit more than they did before. So, and that's what this PD is about is you, you see these skills being used in the context of the classroom, in the context of the discipline and exactly what you're, you were just describing where you got to be willing to kind of give up that lecture in the beginning or that talk in the beginning and let the kids kind of dive into the activity and let them just play a little bit. I think I think at workshop, I can't remember the name of the woman who used this. She actually quoted it from somebody else, but letting them linger in the garden of uncertainty. <laughs> I really like the way that that was stated. And because that's, that's exactly what they need to do. They've got to play with the skills. They've got to play with the content and they have to be doing something with it. Hmm. So now that you've done this, I've, what does this mean for you? You went to this pre-AP thing. So is this for you to go back to your school and like, you know, redesign your stuff or are you now, you know, going to go out and proselytize to the, to the masses of, of pre-AP uh, in the readiness courses or what, what's next for you sort of as part of this? So they trained all of us at the Institute to become faculty members so that we can give workshops uh, when they are, ordered. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll start to see some of that. I know there've been a few this summer, but I think they're hoping this program will kind of, um, more people will be interested and will, that they'll start to see more district science, this kind of PD. For me personally, I'll take back to my classroom, really emphasizing, I think those skills, uh, this year I'll be teaching regular biology, which I haven't taught in two years. So I'm excited to focus on the skills and think about how to weave them into what I'm asking the kids to do to sort of hone in and really develop the kids' proficiency with the analytical reading and writing, thinking about how to apply, put more math into my course, more modeling with them. You know, these are mm-hmm. all things pre-AP, but it sounds very much like NGSS as well. So I kind of, you know, you can't really go wrong here. And then the other nice thing about this is it, you know, leads to more of here with the evaluation process. I don't, I don't know in Illinois, we use Danielson. I don't know what you guys use in Massachusetts, but 
they all seem to be moving in the same direction of more of a focus on student-led discussions, student-led inquiry, student design. And so I think these processes sort of lend themselves to those sort of lessons. And the big picture finally seems to be making a little bit more sense mm. to those of us more experienced who haven't been trained in this from the very beginning. Yeah. So... Well, I think this naturally transition to sort of like this pre-AP sounds very much a build off of what we went through last summer in the Regional Teacher Academy. Because um, I know personally, you know, we, a little over a year ago, it was at the end of June last year. So we're like 13 months since we met um, as much as we've talked throughout the year and we've sort of struggled through these ideas. And I know personally, I took that that course that's supposed to be an AP biology thing and went back and did almost nothing in my AP course with it. Like it didn't, I didn't change very much about my AP. I think our conversations, me, you and Merrick had throughout the year, that influenced like little micro things I did, but I didn't do any major changes to the way I teach AP at the time. Um, although I'm now in the process of doing some some big revisions. So having had that one year of experience where we went to that and now you've come back and you've now done this pre-AP, where do you sit in terms of your one year out from this AP workshop that we did a year ago? Um, where, where's your thinking? How's that shifting your AP thoughts or your curriculum? So I'm I'm kind of with you. Like it hasn't really had a major impact or shift on the curriculum, so to speak. What it did change for me was becoming more involved in the community and using the AP community as a resource, um, both online and then our little virtual community that we've created came out of that, um, which has been wonderful. And then locally, a friend of mine and I have been talking about creating or building a local community of AP teachers that we can meet maybe once a quarter or something. I know there's a couple of them out there. Um, I know Lee, Lee Ferguson started one in Dallas and a couple other teachers have started them around the country, but we don't have one here in around Chicago, at least not one that I'm aware of. And what's interesting is we have one for physics and we have one for chemistry and both of those organizations are very strong, but there's not one for bio. So that's something that I would like to work on. But as far as impact on my AP classroom directly, I think, you know, I went to another workshop this summer about storylining and mm. NGSS, phenomena-based units, and that was really incredible and powerful. And since I walked away from that, I've sort of mull over how that might like look in my classroom. And then when I finally let it simmer enough, uh, make a big change. So I have a feeling that's where we'll be going with AP um, maybe in the next year or two. Yeah. And you work, you work in a team, you work with other AP teachers. There's one other AP teacher in my district. Yeah. And you have like um, common assessments that in your district to like, yes, when you, when you work on things, you have to have to have a, a bit of a team approach in terms of, you can't just completely blow things up and walk away because you have some um, right. agreed upon common assessments that you work with. Right. Yeah. So there's a, exactly. there, there are a few constraints on those things. Yeah. Um, I think that I've been working. I think I went the other way. I did some of the storylining stuff last year as well. Some NGSS storyline view 
last summer as well. So I think I'm like, I've been putting those two together in my head all throughout the last year and the combination of that, um, a conceptual flow graphic that we worked on, um, you know, taking yeah. those ideas and the NGS. There's like, it's so similar. It's, there's so much in yes. common between those two concepts. Um, yeah. Well, I, they go, yes, they're, I feel like the story lining is the how to of how to put some meat with your conceptual flow graphic from the, the BSCS NABT workshop. Yeah. So, and now there's quite a few storylines out there related to NGSS. And as I sat in this workshop this summer, um, it was given by Jason Crean, who's also um, had some involvement, I think with the college board and, and pre-AP, but his, uh, the, you know, he's got a whole curriculum of storylining units. And and I was sitting in there first so excited about them because they look really cool and really fun to do in the classroom. Uh, and these are more towards, I think, regular freshman biology level. Mm -hmm. But I also sat there and found my mind wandering as we were looking at some of the phenomena and developing some of the storylines, like how applicable it is to AP. You can totally take some of what's already there and differentiate to the level of AP. Like I was seeing connections all over the place. So I think it would be cool to get a group of people together to kind of work on storylining with AP. My struggle was, it, you know, they're not classic units. You don't have your ecology unit necessarily. You don't have an evolution unit. Everything with the storylining, everything is focused around your opening phenomena and um, can sort of branch into all different areas of biology. And so you have to, I'm trying to figure out, can I do pieces of this? And at the workshop, they're like, no, you, you shouldn't do pieces of it. Like if you're going to do it, you got to just do it. So how to make that work in a system that I work in where we still have, you know, right now we have these common final assessments and we're sort of beholden to the topics that are on the test and it, it makes it difficult to jump around from, you know, all over the board here and pulling things all from all over the place. Yeah. I find the, the, the thing that I've struggled with a little bit and I've used, so I teach in the alternative program, um, group at my school. And because of that, I have a lot of freedom about what I can do with my curriculum. Um, and that it's, it is really, I can sort of do whatever I want in terms of my goal is to get them prepared for our state assessment at the end of the year. And we're moving towards an NGSS like assessment. So it's been an area where I know that I can present the content on the end of the year exam and they're totally going to be fine. I'm not worried about that. So I've been playing around in the space of using these storylines, but at the same time, I've struggled with the concept of assessment in them in to the terms of giving students adequate feedback on their learning objectives and whether or not they're actually growing and getting feedback without having sort of the classic unit structure. So I think because they kind of go and they can venture off in a lot of different points, you do have to provide a little bit of structure of we're going to, I'm going to provide these sort of little pushes to hit this content, but then you have to find time to give some assessments and what those assessments look like and how students can make meaning of them and how students can get feedback. It's a space that I just, I have a bunch of ideas, but I don't, that's the part that I'm really like, 
I don't feel great on. And I've tried sort of traditional tests and quizzes that are based off the concepts with some degree of success. I've tried some open-ended assessments. I've, I've, I've used some labs and stuff like that. But marrying, marrying the concept of uh, an assessment that is ultimately going to be on some of these, you know, learning objectives that are, are laid out or performance expectations and assessing in a way that is meaningful to students has been hard. You know what I mean? That's because I, that's what I think I feel like the kids get off in the wilderness a little bit on what they're doing and are they making it or are they getting it? In the workshop that I took, Jason Crean has actually part of his curriculum. It's pretty comprehensive and he actually includes assessments and the preview that we saw the assessments that he had, they actually looked really good. They, they looked like, you know, they were all data-based. They, they looked like what you'd see on a, I hate to say standardized test, but yeah, sort of a scaled back version of what, what you might see on a typical like AP exam where it's all application, application, application. And that was pretty exciting to me because it sort of validated oh, this can be done and quality assessments can come out of this. And, or I didn't feel like I would be sacrificing on assessments if I, if I went down this route. Mm. Yeah. I'll have to go back and check out their storyline website. Cause I, I have used their, um, you know, why don't antibiotics work the way they used to um, storyline, mm-hmm. which I know is on the NGSS storylines website. Um, and I knew that more were coming down the pike. So I'll have to check those out. Um, yeah, the whole process, the development process that he uses is pretty cool as well. Um, basically, like when I went, the work, the workshop theme or our focus was uh, the monarch butterfly migration. Mm-hmm. And so he got a bunch of teachers together, uh, had an expert come in and present about the monarch butterfly migration, and then sort of challenged us to write lessons that are or activities that are data-based and aligned to NGSS and tell a story of what's happening with the monarch butterflies. And so that's how these units get developed. They're developed by teachers, for teachers, and they're pretty good. The first one that we got the closest look at was called Africa. And it's just... It's really cool what the kids are doing. Mm. It's very exciting. It's so much to the point where I wanted to be like, can I just do this this year? Yeah. (laughs) And I can't, I can't, I, I can't, I don't think I can walk into my school and, uh, and throw everything out and, and start and do this. Yeah. And that's the other, like, this is sort of the other component that I feel like, you know, we've been on the journey the last few years and, um, I do want to respect the, place where the other teachers I work with are. Um, at the same yeah, time, I exactly. want to do some new stuff. And so I I don't know if they would agree with, on this, but I've been doing my best to push them to what I think is like their edge um, <laughs> of comfort. Like I get them as far out as I can get them comfortably on changes. But um, mm-hmm. I think you're right in terms of this. This is just, this is just a rethinking. This is just, it's totally different. So um I'm curious to see, and I I think, I don't know where you guys are on the state assessment piece. Um, If, you know, Illinois, they've, I guess we're, we're theoretically two years out from being a completely different assessment from what they had been doing previously. And I know that as assessments change, you develop a little bit of freedom to 
play around with your curriculum. Um, so I don't know where Illinois is or if Illinois has an assessment or if you know. <laughs> Illinois is sort of a mess. Yeah. <laughs> Not is. only in that department, but <laughs> pretty much in every department at the state government level, we are uh, we are in bad shape. So yeah, I'm I'm just not going to say anything more about that. Yeah, but I mean, the idea is that most states are at some point in the next five years or so going to be rolling out some sort of state assessment, unless they all go away, in which case nobody would be heartbroken about that. But it does feel like most states are toying with these ideas, piloting, working towards an assessment, which if they do, if it's done right should be focusing on skills over content and presenting data and presenting, you know, a lot of what we've talked about. And I think when that happens, it's going to provide a space for people to reimagine their curriculum as as a new way. Um, I know in Massachusetts, when they did that, they the last time around, the content, like, it was different. And people were like, oh, we don't have time to do all this content. I'm like, what are you talking about? And it was because people were, wanted to teach all the content they had always taught, plus made sure that they hit all of these other content pieces. So it was like content addition, not like reframing of content. But the skills and the way they're talking about the skills, the, the content is actually coming down and the skills are going up. And so if students are actually going to be assessed on skills and we're going to be able to get feedback on what the kids can and cannot do from the skill side, it's going to provide opportunity to have conversations about our students really struggle with, you know, reading this type of material or this type of data analysis or that sort of thing. And so I'm, I mean, this is super optimistic, but I'm optimistic that there may be some assessments coming down the pike, which will create opportunities. Yeah. Illinois actually does have an assessment and um, we, it was brand new two years ago and or maybe it's three years ago now. So we gave it and it was all online, which was an interesting rollout. Uh, and I was sort of peeking over the kids' shoulders, trying to get an idea of what the questions were looking like. Um, and they actually were decent, like they were good questions and they were more of the application-based, uh, more, less content, more, more concept and application. So, but, Illinois has to get a better handle, I think, on their process before that test can begin to influence changes in curriculum. Mm. Yeah. So I think it was a step in the right direction, but there are so many other things going on with Illinois and this, the, the testing and the education department in general that it's, like I said, it's, it's got to be, it's going to be some time before that test begins to influence curriculum, hmm. which is unfortunate because I think it was a decent attempt at a standardized test. Yeah. And this, this conversation is always really hard for me because I completely hear the idea that a lot of people have, which is our students are taking too many tests, they're taking too many high stake tests and that sort of thing. And I, and we lose way too many days to assessment at the end of the year and state assessment. And that's, those are all true statements. I completely agree with that. At the same time, there, I, I mean, I was part of the, the Massachusetts standard setting group back in 2005, 2006, when we did it for our, our last MCAS. And I found that the process was really well rolled out and it was very valuable and it gave me a lot of feedback as an instructor and it made me make a lot of decisions. And I don't know that those are the best decisions in the world, but 
there certainly was a feedback mechanism that helped inform my instruction about like how to best prepare my students. And now that we're in a moment where I think they're making even better decisions about what students need to demonstrate, there is this opportunity to get feedback. Now, should they be losing nine days in their spring to take state assessments? The answer is no. And there should be ways of providing feedback and should like elementary students be stressed out about their state assessment? The answer is no. There is a middle ground between providing feedback and stressing out elementary students. Like there's a there's a middle ground there. And we're I feel like we're really far away from those two things coming together. And I'm mm-hmm. hopeful, you know, like there's a few different things gonna happen as a result. But I I I guess I'm I'm taking the sunny side of it to say they did a decent job in terms of just the biology. All I can speak is the biology test in Massachusetts, the last time they rolled it out, they did a decent job with it. And as far as the rest of the state and the too much assessments, I echo a lot of your, a lot of other things need to be worked out in Massachusetts, but I'm hopeful that we're in a moment where they maybe can make some good decisions that will both be, you know, you, I guess in the end, just good feedback. Like that's all I want. I just want good feedback. Right. So right. hopefully that hopefully they'll get in that space. <laughs> Uh, eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's shift away from state testing because there's really no good uh, that comes out of state testing. But uh, <laughs> let's go to like things you're looking forward to. So like we've talked about this a lot of theory, I feel like. Like everything we've had as a conversation is about theory. So like what are you looking forward to actually in your classroom, you know, this upcoming year where this is going to come out probably the week before you go into your classroom for the year. I hate to freak you out on that, um, <laughs> but this is going to come out about one week before you're, you're seeing your kids. What are you looking forward to in the classroom? Uh, well, I'm looking forward to working with the regular kids again. I think it's going to give me the freedom to play a little bit more in, in the AP world. I feel like there's so much to do that there's time to play a little bit, but there's, there's just, to me, I feel like I've got a lot more play space it, with the regular kids. So that's exciting for me. I've been kind of thinking about what I want to do differently this year and probably playing a little bit with some of the storylining pieces and figuring out what that could look like in my classroom. What else am I looking forward to? This will be my fourth year teaching AP, and I feel like, you know, it takes five years to really feel good about what you're doing with a course, especially a course like AP. So going back into the classroom and when I started teaching, I adopted a course that my colleague uh, Ruth Gleischer had taught and she had been teaching for 23 years. She had been teaching AP. And so I, she trained me and, and we worked very well together. I loved working with her, but you know, when, once you get two years under your belt of a course, you start to get ideas of how you want to shift it. And so unfortunately I didn't get the opportunity to continue to work with her and play with the course with her because she retired. Mm. But I do have another colleague that now that he's got a year under his belt, I think we'll really have the opportunity to kind of play with the course a little bit and, and make some changes in AP as well. So nothing really revolutionary. But just continuing to do, I think, what we teachers do, which is make little changes here and there constantly. (laughs) You never, I feel like you never reach a point where you, you know, 
at least me, I I never teach the same course twice. I'm constantly changing things, but that's part of the fun of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, this is the exciting time of the year. I don't know if you get like me, but usually like the week before school starts, I have, I sleep terribly. I don't sleep well at all. <laughs> so I go into the school year and I feel like the nerves and, you know, jittery. And then like a weekend, I'm like exhausted because I hadn't slept well for yeah. a week. And now that I got to get used to that schedule again. But yeah, it is. I, I think it's a good excitement to get back into the classroom. So, all right. So before we get to you getting to ask me questions, uh, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? So my husband would tell you I belong to the cult of orange theory. Okay. <laughs> That's. That's the gym that I go to, oh. um, and I'm there like five times a week. So that's, but it's usually like early in the morning before the day starts, so it doesn't really interfere with our day too much. <laughs> um, but I enjoy, so I enjoy working out at the that gym. What else do I do? I have a garden, a vegetable garden, and so I enjoy doing that in the summertime. We like to travel, my family with the kids. I've got two kids, my daughters. 12 and my son is nine and we enjoy they're at that sweet spot where they still you know like to be around you um but are old enough and independent enough where you can start really doing some fun things with them so uh we've got some trips planned for the future when we because we really are enjoying traveling with them right now i think that's pretty good yeah a pretty full i like it's not like we have like a ton of free time um it feels like we've had free time in the last month or so but uh it, dis it disappears quick so yeah yeah it does yeah all right so what questions do you have for me <laughs> so i do know that this was your first time at the ap read mm -hmm. so i'm curious to know how that went uh it was good in terms of like the mechanics of going to it I wasn't too stressed about it. Um, you know, it was like they train you, they show you the questions, you stand in grade every day for sit or stand for in grade every day for like long stretches of time. They feed you. Um, you get a lot of time to talk to other AP teachers from a newbie perspective. And, and I had been told this by some other sort of newbie ish people. So like Val May, who ran our, our workshop last summer, Val had alluded to the fact that I wouldn't really feel like a true newbie because of all the people I knew, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so like I was a newbie, but not a newbie. Like I, and I actually was just with somebody who was at my table, who is a fellow Massachusetts teacher, who is a fellow Acorn new teacher. She was like, he was new, but he wasn't really new <laughs> like, <laughs> I, because I, I know a lot of people who do the read every year and that. So I don't know that I got a true newbie experience experience, but in terms of what the mechanics were like and how it translates to the classroom, I felt like I am definitely much more equipped to look at student work in a different way than I looked at it before. In terms of I might have been hypercritical and nitpicky about things in a particular way, which may have not necessarily been the things that I needed to focus on to help students get better. Like, I think I'm going to do a lot better at giving very specific feedback to students about how to frame their writing to clearly communicate, having read, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of student work. And while you're doing that, you're thinking about, all right, what, where is the student missing? And thinking about it very specifically with this, you, this rubric, why did the student not get this point? And when you do that over and over again, 
it makes you think about, well, how would I fix this? And then you have discussions in your downtime with people about, can you believe that students are writing that? Well, how would you, like, why are students writing that? Or where's their confusion point? Or where are they making their mistakes? And I think that process of being immersed in that community, in, in that work, definitely I felt myself shift a little bit in terms of, I felt my lens of looking at student work shift throughout that week. And so I'm, I'm excited to actually look at student work again next year, um, knowing that it's only going to be like 50 papers and not like hundreds of papers. Um, I'm, actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to those smaller bits to give the feedback um, and and engage in the, the feedback conversations with students to hopefully help them get better um, along that line. So, yeah, that was nice. that was my sort of big takeaway from AP. Um, and I'll also say that it gave me, uh, you know, you're like incremental, incremental, incremental. And I, you already sort of know this a little bit about me. I'm not very, I, I'm sort of incremental, but my definition of an incremental change and me like just tipping over my entire class and changing it. Um, uh, I am tipping over our entire AP class and we're storylining it out next year. So we've moved. Oh, to, I cannot wait to hear all about so this. So we're moving to 11 questions next year, where which uh, Brian and my colleague and I like sat down the last like the last week of school before I went to the read. And I had printed out very much like we had done last summer. I had printed out all of the essential knowledge questions for the course. And I had come up with a document where I had been sort of stocking questions that we thought were going to be interesting and engaging. Um, mm-hmm. and I had been putting those in a document and then we sat down and we took the piece of paper and I put the question out and I'm like, all right, which of these essential knowledge questions go with which questions? And we just sort of shuffled them around and we talked a little bit about it and we moved some more around and we talked a little bit more about it. And then I recorded it all down and I put it into a document and then I started to storyline out what the curriculum looks like. And as I'm doing it, I know that this is not right. I know that like, this is just going to be okay. It's not going to be perfect. And I've been, I have this like deep seated suspicion that I need to do a lot fewer questions and make it much more like NGS storyline. Like we have too many questions right now and it's going to be too choppy and that we need to be spending like five and six weeks on something, not like three and four weeks on something. And that maybe we're going to move down, but we're changing the way we're assessing next year. So we're going to go to monthly cumulative assessments rather than unit assessments. And mm-hmm. yeah, just doing a lot of different stuff. I'll be recording some videos next couple of days, which I'm going to use mostly Paul Anderson videos, but I'm going to also be making some of my own to fill in gaps that help with my storylines. I think I came up with like five or six that need I needed to fill in some gaps that I couldn't just steal from Paul <laughs> in my flip. And then I think eventually we'll move over to a full flip model where we make all the videos. But for now, I, c- I couldn't do all of the stuff that I'm doing and make, you know, 50, no, it's vi- so 50, much. 50 videos. It's so but much. yeah, I mean, I made 40 videos last year <laughs> wow. and I just I just don't have it in me to do like with all of the other curriculum changes to do that again this year. So, um, yeah, like it, I think the the two things were I, I felt like I was sort of on a good path and I was ready to make that leap and I was ready to change some things and going to the read gave me the confidence of, yep, I don't need to teach these units that a lot of the things that are struggles for my students in my course are not necessarily struggles that help them get better at doing science and being prepared for the AP and anything Mm -hmm. that doesn't help them struggle well with science and think about scientific concepts and and or help them get ready for that AP test at the end of the year. If it doesn't achieve one of those two things, we should get it out of the course. Yeah. And so like we're, I, it sounds like I'm adding a lot of things, but the truth is I'm 
rearranging a lot of things. I'm taking a lot of things that we do well, our labs, our projects, the things that we really feel are the cornerstones of our course, and I'm moving those to the forefront. And those are the things that are the questions that I use to drive. And it was like, why am I teaching this big giant unit all about this stuff? And then I just barely squeeze in this lab here because we can barely fit it in. And, oh, mm-hmm. we, we struggle to fit this project in. No, make the project concept the driving question for the for what we're going to talk about and then tie in those labs and then filter in the content around it um, in those ways. So, yeah, nothing, nothing major, just, you know, blowing up an entire established AP course to <laughs> do it differently next year. So. Well, I'm very excited to hear how it's going throughout the year because that's, like I said, you get to be the guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, you get to be the guinea pig, and then I can uh, wrap my mind around it. Well, and again, this is also from a point of privilege. I get really fantastic students. Like I really mm-hmm. do. Like my kids are like they're rock stars. They're awesome. Um, and so like I have a lot of freedom because our kids are going to knock it out of the park at the end of the year. Do I have any doubt at the end of like next? You know, next May when they sit down and take the AP, do I have any doubt that they're going to get ready? Do I have any doubt that they're going to give me feedback about what they're getting and what they're not getting? I I know these kids. Mm-hmm. They're just such good, hardworking, you know, kids. And they, they're just they they want to learn science and they want to do it. And I have a great I have a great clientele and I have a great colleague in which to try these things, um, mm-hmm. you know, and. Worst case scenario, you know, there's parts of these that aren't working. I have no problem, you know, backfilling in with more content if we need to. But um, I've I've moved content off to the side as a supporting role. And we really are going to hopefully do a lot of science. And meanwhile, I've got a lot of cool science projects that I've been trying to figure out how I want to do them. And so now I'm like, hmm, I now have an extra week here of to do this lab. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about the some of the space that I'm opening up to pursue some of the scientific questions that I feel like I've been rushing through, like, uh, oh, but we also have to do this content or, oh, we have to do this. And I, I feel like I'm now finally creating some space where kids are going to be able to do some good stuff um, on the science end. So. Nice. All right. So we have reached picks of the episode. So, Britt, what is your pick of the episode? So my pick of the episode is a book titled Factfulness by Hans Rosling. And I actually haven't read it yet, but it is on my to-read list because um, I learned about it from my dad this summer. I went to visit him in Columbus, Ohio. And he, he said, come here and take a quiz. And he puts this piece of paper in front of me. And it's a bunch of questions. I don't have the quiz here in front of me. I should have I should have looked for it. But it was like, you know, what percentage of the world's kids are vaccinated and what percentage of women are educated beyond a high school degree. And so all, all these questions about the world. And when I took it, I was surprised at how unsure I was about many of the answers. And my dad told me that like 85 or 90% of the people get eight out of 10 wrong or nine out of 10 wrong on this quiz. So it came out of this book and it's about the summary is 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. And what hooked me about it was I felt like there was a lot of tie-ins to uh, ecology and population with AP Bio. And so I want to read the book and sort of wrap my mind around um, how I can use this in the classroom because I feel like the kids would find it moderately interesting 
especially learning that a lot of the assumptions we have about the world aren't necessarily true. Mm. And you said Bill Gates is, is giving away free copies of this book to people? Yeah. So any graduate, I think it's any college graduate in 2018 can get the book for free, but it's also available for free download. I noticed as I was, uh, finding the link for you. So it is free downloadable. Cool. So if you, I'll have to check that one out as well. It was funny because when I saw Bill Gates in your in your pick, it reminded me of something I had seen earlier in the week. Uh, because uh, when we're recording this, we're getting ready for Shark Week. I think Shark <laughs> Week will have just ended. And I was watching uh, a promo, I don't think it was yesterday. It was Shaq on Shark Week. And I guess Shaq and Shark sound alike. So they've decided to do that. <laughs> Shaq is doing promos for Shark Week. And uh, I saw a tweet about this where somebody was like, somebody needs to have a week about the uh, the actual deadliest animal in the world. And, you know, the most deadly animal in the world is not the shark, but the mosquito. And so uh, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, they actually have a an article that they put out last April, which is on the deadliest animal in the world, uh, which is all about the mosquito. And it talks about the statistics of the number of people who are killed by mosquitoes each year. And as somebody who, you know, near and dear to my heart, if there's one thing I like to do, it's to capture insects and grind them up and look at their DNA, uh, which I've done <laughs> with like numerous different projects in my, whether it's my microbiome, my fruit fly microbiome lab or doing Wabakia or doing various things. I feel like I've spent uh, more time than the average uh, collecting insects and grinding them up uh, and looking at their DNA. Um, to me, mosquitoes are enormously interesting, and I am putting some uh, questions together um, and tying in several of my project ideas. I think I'm actually asking my students this year, one of the questions is, should we eliminate um, ticks and mosquitoes like is that something we should look to do because there are a lot of initiatives out there to eliminate mosquitoes um, and uh, and in some cases uh, reduce tick populations in particular regions to deal with vector borne diseases and is that a good thing to do and certainly from a public health standpoint there's huge benefits but there are a lot of ecological questions and a lot of you know, a lot of other questions that arise out of it um, that I think are going to be interesting for for kids. And so I may I may steal this article and and drop this in while I, I teach next year uh, to talk about the the deadliest animal in the world because it's not a it's not a bear, it's not even a hippo which kill a lot of people. Um, and they have a chart on this one that has like the number of people are killed every year by different animals. It's a, it's a good one. So so nice. deadliest animal in the world. All right. Well, Britt, thanks for joining me. We are going to have to get uh, Merrick on the phone and uh, schedule. He's He texts me out, totally out of the blue uh, all the time. So we have to schedule some some talk time either in August or in September to start getting together and talking. And um, so because you guys keep me grounded and make me think about a lot of stuff uh, <laughs> in the AP yeah. world. Definitely. Maintain our conversations. So let me give credits for this episode. Uh, you can support this episode and all my episodes by joining uh, me on patreon.com slash lots and donate there. I post show notes on there. And I also invite Patreons into a Slack community where myself and John Darko and David Knufke, who I doubt is going to be there much seeing as he's in Singapore right now, but he'll be hopefully coming back into our, our little PLC there and talking to them. Music from this and every episode is provided by Jank Jenkins and X Magicians. Show notes are also provided on lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Britt, you're on Twitter as well. You're, what is your handle? At B-R-I-C-Z-U. B-R-I-C-Z-U. So 
you can follow Britt on Twitter as well. I'll, I'll throw the note. I'll throw that into my show notes so uh, people can see it because you do you occasionally put stuff out there. Um, occasionally, yeah. Yeah, I get like the occasional like from you on something I've put out there too. <laughs> <laughs> That's in there. All right, so uh, thank you all for joining me, and I will talk to everybody soon.